Well, good morning, good morning. Welcome to The Grove. If this is your first time with us or maybe first time back in a while, we are so glad that you're here today. My name is Stephen and I am one of the pastors here and we are kicking off a brand new sermon series this morning called Called. Now, to get us started, I want to talk about uh, a new hobby that I have. Uh, I take up these hobbies frequently, and if you've heard some recent sermons, you recognize that really my hobbies are just a mask for me to find new categories to spend money. Now, this new hobby uh, started with a birthday gift. Um, I had a birthday recently, and um, I was gifted a record player, a turntable. Now, the real story of the record player and the turntable was that... uh, I was going to be gifted a record player and a turntable, but because I'm a little impatient, I found one that I really wanted and I got it for myself. So I'm learning how to live my life in relationship with others, and sometimes you don't have to go and get your own gifts, you have to let the people in your life get those gifts for you, Um, but I'm learning, and so be patient with me. So I have a record player now. Well, I was like, well, what records do I want? I'm going through this thought process about, okay, now how do I populate my record collection? I'm like, well, it needs to be tasteful because if someone asks me what records I have, I need to be able to show them that I have some of the greatest albums of all time. So you go to the list of like what are the 500 greatest albums of all time or the 100 greatest albums of all time. You know, Rolling Stone has these lists. And so I'm like starting to make notes like, ooh, that's a good one or ooh, I like that one or ooh, why is that one there? You know, kind of you kind of go through this exercise. And then I started to like begin to add to my record collection. I began to populate my record collection And in the process of kind of adding these records, I started to get into some of the details about like first pressings and second pressings and some of the nuances about why certain records are more valuable than other records. And I didn't know any of this. It was all brand new to me because I'm just kind of learning. But what I have learned is that the way that a record is made is they take this master and they take a needle and they carve or they kind of imprint on the record in circular lines, this musical information, it stores somehow through magic, it stores like the sounds of the album. Then what they do is they kind of take the negative version of that and they create a master copy. And so in the original that has all the carvings in it, they take another one that's like the opposite. It's got all the ridges in it and it kind of functions as a stamp. And then, this is kind of like the master copy that they use for the first pressing of albums. What they do is they press into like steam-softened vinyl with a hydraulic press, this kind of master stamp that creates these copies. Well, over time, as you can imagine, the stamps wear down, and they don't imprint with the same quality as previous pressings, and this is why certain first pressings are more valuable and expensive. They're rarer. They sound better, arguably, than later pressings. Well, in the midst of all of this, I started to think about like the idea that there is this imprint in these records that carries information. It carries sounds, it carries the lyrics, the words of all of this music that has become beloved generation after generation. Some of the records that I have are like 40, 50 years old, and they still carry the same information in it. One of the albums that I've gotten is uh, U2's Joshua Tree album. I don't know if we have any U2 fans here this morning. Doesn't sound like it. Okay, this is going to go over well. Good. All right. I picked the right album this morning. But in this album, this was kind of like, it's like their fifth album, but this was the Grammy-winning album in 1988. Some of you were like, oh, I'm old. 
1988 was when this came out, and it has sold almost 30 million copies. There's 30 million of these walking around, and in this record is imprinted this information about music, about words. And the second track on side one, does anybody know what the second track on side one is? Since nobody was a fan, I bet nobody's going to know the answer to this. The second track on side one is, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's right. Now, this album, that song, goes on to be one of U2's greatest hits. And in the song, Bono pins these words, modern day poetry, about the search for significance and meaning, the search for satisfaction and fulfillment. He talks about the lengths that he goes to try to have this answer to this kind of nagging question fulfilled. He climbs the highest mountains and across the fields and he goes to these great lengths. He has all of these experiences and at the end of kind of every iteration and every verse of his searching for something that he's looking for, he kind of comes to the conclusion that he still hasn't found it. He still hasn't found what he's looking for. I think that's the question that ultimately kind of haunts all of humanity. There's this longing inside each of us, this searching for something that's imprinted on us in the same way that that song is imprinted on this vinyl that kind of calls to us. Now, maybe we don't use the language about significance or purpose or I'm trying to find the meaning in my life, but we search after it in a variety of different ways. From kind of the time that we become teenagers, we have this world of choice in front of us. And so we start to look at all of the ways that we can become who we want to be. It's why kids love going places without their parents because it's this new opportunity to begin to craft and to mold and to shape identity. It's why the mall is filled with teenagers. This is the place where we begin to navigate in these roaming herds of small, evolving people who we believe we are, who we want to become. This is what happens when we're teens. And then as we become 20-year-olds into our 20s, we start to have to make some of the choices. We have to start saying yes to certain things, which unfortunately means saying no to other things. And so in the process of choosing, we begin to wrestle. We recognize that while we had everything, kind of the world was our oyster and every choice was before us, that means we have to start closing certain doors, saying no to certain things as we begin to wrestle with and discover the types of persons that we want to be. Now, behind all of that, again, is this search for significance, for fulfillment. It's when we start to wrestle with these kind of existential questions like, who am I? And why am I here? And what is the point of all of this? We long for our lives to matter, to account for something. And then as we get into our 30s, perhaps we start to recognize that maybe the choices that we've made in our 20s and our teens uh, haven't lived up to all that we had hoped that they would be. Maybe we begin to start to feel like kind of the weight of some of the responsibilities and the decisions that we've taken on don't seem to be as fruitful and as meaningful as we hoped they would. It starts to feel a little cumbersome, all of the responsibility that we carry. And it starts to be like, wow, no one told me that this was actually going to be hard. And all the adults in the room laugh. and They're like, yes, you're excited about all this freedom until it comes with responsibility and then you're ready to give it back. 
All the adults, we would long to be a teenager again just for the sake of the opportunity to not be kind of burdened by all the responsibility that we carry. And then as we move into our 40s and 50s, we start to wonder, okay, the choices that we've made in our career and in our lives, is this, is this kind of who I want to be the rest of my life? We're kind of at this halfway point, so to speak, and we start to wonder, like, can I see myself doing this forever? Can I see myself in this job forever? Can I see myself kind of in this industry or this style of life forever or with this person forever? We start to wrestle with kind of the duration of the choices that we've made. And at some point, parenthood impacts many of us. And as we move to the end of kind of that season of parenthood where our children are in the homes and as we release them into the world, we begin to wrestle with and wonder with, okay, what fills the void now? Now that this purpose, this sense of fulfillment and significance is no longer here because my child has left, is there some new high purpose that my life will be defined by? And then at some point in our lives, perhaps some of us will experience unbelievable success with the choices that we've made. It doesn't have to be financial, but we will achieve things that we didn't realize that we could achieve will accomplish things that we had dreamed of but didn't necessarily know for certain would happen to us. And as we get to the end of some of these accomplishments and success, we now start to wrestle with what is the responsibility that I have to others because of this success, because of virtue of my position, by virtue of my resources, by virtue of my experience and knowledge. Do I have some responsibility to other people to begin to share, to begin to kind of help others come along in ways that maybe weren't afforded to me or maybe ways that were afforded to me. And then at some point, we hit some of these significant transitions and changes in our life, whether we change careers, whether we move houses, whether we have relationships that end or we come across medical diagnoses that change the course of our life and our relationships with loved ones. And we start to wrestle with these transitions and it's almost kind of the wrestling with the transition is actually far more difficult than making the actual transitions themselves because lingering behind the choices that we know that we're trying to make and the transitions that we're trying to navigate is this question of, am I going to make the right choice? What happens as a result of the choices that we're making? I think ultimately inspired by this longing for significance, for purpose, for fulfillment, because we want our lives to count. And then at some point, we get to the end of our life, and we look back, and we begin to kind of wrestle with the question. We begin to reflect on, okay, with this kingdom that we've created, however large or tiny it may be, was it worth all of the trade-offs that we made along the way? The place that we stand, was it worth what we had to spend to get what we have now? Or do we look back with regret and say, no, I didn't make the right choices. My life has not amounted to what I'd hoped it would. Or I accomplished all of these things, and now looking back to the trade-offs that I've made to get here, I realize that it was kind of a foolish errand because these trade-offs aren't worth it. We all know people in every stage of this. My guess is you find yourself in one of these stages. And you know the sense kind of the things that haunt you in the middle of the night that you wake up at 2 a.m. and wrestle with and go back to sleep and push it off for another day. Ultimately, this is what we're going to wrestle with in this sermon series. 
Because there is a significance and a purpose and a longing for fulfillment that we all possess that is imprinted upon all of us. And I, we believe that the only answer to this fulfillment, this search for fulfillment, comes in the form of living our life in devotion to God. We'll talk about that more in a second. But this is what it means to be called. This is what it means to experience a calling, a living your life for a higher purpose. 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he wrestles with these same questions about significance and purpose and meaning, and in his journal he kind of comes to this revelation and this conclusion. He says this, he says, the, things, the thing is to want to understand myself, to see what God really wants me to do. The thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and I can die. I think all of us want this. I think the challenge comes, though, is in our day and age, we are presented with more choices to pursue fulfillment to this longing, to this searching, to this question. There are more ideologies and isms available to us, more pursuits, more ways that we can spend our life, our time, our energy, our resources than ever before in the history of the world. We have more choice available to us. And at the same time, we have less consensus on what a meaningful, significant, fulfilled, and purposeful life looks like. There doesn't seem to be agreement on what it looks like to have a meaningful, purposeful life. You just kind of go to the different silos and the different sectors and the different components and parts of this culture and world, and you see all sorts of different answers. For some, it's getting into the best schools so that you can have the best opportunity to get a great job for career advancement so that eventually you can be successful and have enough financial resources to provide for your family so that they can get into even better schools, so that they can get even better jobs. And it's kind of this onward, upward march. For some people, this is the point of life. This is what it means to live life well. For other people, it's perhaps a more hedonistic approach. It's just for the sensation and the fulfillment of pleasure, of happiness. It's doing what feels good. It's kind of that Epicurean maxism, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. And so there's a whole category of this world that spends its life and energies and resources in pursuit of that. Still, others begin to suggest that maybe it's popularity, maybe, whether it's local, global, some sort of notoriety, some sort of public approval, some sort of kind of fame, that's what it means to be successful. And so people do all sorts of things in front of cameras to ensure that that happens to them, all sorts of weird little dances, to make sure that people know that they exist, that their life matters and counts for something. doesn't matter where you turn, there's an answer or a provided explanation for what it looks like to live a significant and a meaningful and fulfilled life. So back to Bono's question and his search, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. My guess is in small pockets and areas of our life, we've experienced moments of meaning, moments of significance and purpose. But what does it look like to have a life that's continually, continually filled with that kind of meaning and significance? Whether you are 13 or you are 83, what does it look like to have a life that you can look back on and say at every moment, at every chapter, at every season and stage and transition, 
my life was marked with deep meaning, deep significance, and deep purpose. This is the thing, the thing that we all ultimately want, whether we've been able to name it as such. This is what we long for. This is what we are still searching for. And this is why in the Gospel of John, Jesus' first recorded words to anyone, the first things that come out of Jesus' mouth, come to a group of disciples. They're not yet his disciples. They will become his disciples. But it's a group of people who are kind of curious about Jesus and who he is. And so he turns and looks at them, and this is the question he asks them. The very first thing Jesus says in the Gospel of John, what are you looking for? It's this acknowledgement that, like the record, like each one of us, there is an imprint in our lives, this longing, this searching for significance and meaning. And Jesus speaks directly into it. He says, what are you looking for? Perhaps the, the tone, which we don't have here, kind of implied that. What are you looking for really? What is it that you really long for? What is it the depths of your deepest wishes and longings in your heart? Is it the superficial things that we kind of pursue and spend our efforts chasing after? Or is it something more? Whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, what is it that you're looking for? Because I think what we all recognize in our lives or in the lives of others is the answer isn't more of whatever it is that we currently have. We know people with a whole bunch who don't seem to be happy. And we know people in pursuit of even more that still seem equally as unhappy. You can go to the richest and the most famous and to those with the most meager lifestyle. And if they are in pursuit of more, they're still searching. They're still looking. There never seems to be an answer to this question or a satisfactory one, at least, that's, that prompts this search in their hearts and their lives. The one that Jesus asked his disciples, what is it that you're looking for? Well, we think there's an answer to this. And the answer, I think, is the very next thing that Jesus says to these disciples. It's the invitation that he extends to them, and it's the one that he extends to each one of us. It's an invitation into a calling. It's an invitation into a life of significance and purpose, living our lives in service to the work that God is doing in the world. This is what Jesus says. He says, what are you looking for? And then in that kind of haunting space and silence, he invites them to come and see. And other passages and other gospels, it's framed as follow me. It's an invitation into the unknown. And this is what we'll see in all of the different call stories that we're going to look at over the course of this series. There's this invitation to step away from what is familiar, from what is known, and into a space and a land and a life that is not yet defined. One that requires trust one that requires faith, and one that requires letting go of all of the ways that the world tries to tell you that these are the answers to a life of significance and purpose. My guess is we've all had moments where we've stepped away and stepped into some type of invitation like this, even if it's briefly, even if it's for a moment. And it feels confusing, it feels strange, you don't have a sense of whether or not you're doing it right. I think this is why in moments of great crisis in people's life or great transition, whether it's death or divorce or illness, most of the people we know, they come back to church. They come to religion in some shape or form. Why? Because it's 
some subtle, deep, subconscious recognition that there's really only one place that has, there seems to have the answers to the questions that long and haunt the human heart. There's something that we long for. There's something that we want. And Jesus extends an invitation to us to pursue it. And so the definition that we're going to be working with, kind of the duration of the series, about what it means to be called, framed in a different way, is the sense of calling, that we have a calling upon our life. And this is the definition that we're going to use. It's going to be different than maybe the one that you expect, but it's the invitation to fully participate in God's redemptive and creative work in the world. Now, what we'll see through these stories in Scripture is some people, this calling has very specific details around it. For some people, it's more general. What I personally believe is calling, there's not one specific calling that we all have, and if you can't figure it out and find it in the course of your life, your life is a waste. I think that's far too cruel. This isn't this needle in a haystack that there's only one specific thing that you were meant to made to do. And if you don't have it, if you can't find it, if you don't, you're not able to identify it, or if it's taken away from you in some shape or form, that your life is worthless and meaningless. That doesn't seem to be what I see when I read Scripture, and that doesn't seem to be what we find in these call stories that we're going to look at over the course of the series. Rather, a calling is really a faithfulness to listen to and respond to God's invitation. Now, for some of us, that calling will kind of span maybe several decades of our life. For some of us, it follows us in seasons and in stages because it's not tied to one specific definition or one specific answer. What it is is a willingness to continue to be faithful, a willingness to continue to listen to and discern how God is wanting to use you in this world to fulfill his purpose and his work of redeeming and restoring and remaking this world in his image. This is why for some of us, we come to church and we feel and leave a little disappointed because it didn't answer any questions. We thought there would be kind of this magic presto moment and everything would be fixed and we'd be better, and everything would make sense, and we'd always be happy, and our relationships would always work, and everything would be kind of rainbows and butterflies. And when that doesn't happen, we become a little disenchanted, a little frustrated. It's like, well, I tried that church, but it didn't work, so maybe I'll go to a different church. But I think what we see throughout Scripture, what happens is when we faithfully pursue this invitation, when we wrestle with it, when we discern it, when we walk through periods of our life in a bit of a haze and a fog, not exactly knowing if we're following faithfully or doing it right, it's in the messy middle that our calling is brightest and most fulfilled. This is where we discover meaning and purpose. It's not kind of this template that you're going to leave and go apply. If you do these six things, you're going to be able to live into your calling and purpose. I wish that I had those things. I could sell a lot of books if I had like the six ways to live into your specific unique calling and purpose in life. I don't have that. This one's far more nuanced. This one's far slower. It's far more difficult. And I know that's disappointing for all of us because we'd like a quick, easy answer. But what I do think that we have available to us 
is a continual reminder in the stories of Scripture, in the lives of people who God has called and extended this invitation to, of what it looks like to be faithful, what it looks like to fully participate in every aspect and area of our lives, not just in one kind of category while we keep control over the rest of our lives, but to fully participate in every area of our lives in God's redemptive and creative work in the world. Kind of as we begin to wrap up, Oz Guinness, a writer, theologian, kind of describes calling this language. Maybe this will be more helpful. He says, calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived at as a response to his summons and service. Now, for some of you, you're like, the other definition was clear. Can you go back to that one, please? But what I think it speaks to is the totality of what's asked of us. It's not just Sunday morning for one hour, maybe a Bible study once a week or every other week. It's about how do we live our entire lives faithfully in service to God, using all that we are, our careers, our relationships, our talents and our abilities, the unique giftedness, the general giftedness that we have that's not that different from other people, How do we use all that we are to live and to follow and to serve God? Because this is the invitation that he extends to us, and it's the invitation that we see in communion. Because it doesn't matter at what stage you are in your journey. It doesn't matter how old you are or what your life has looked like to this point. It doesn't matter if your life has yet to this point to be marked by any type of participation in the creative and redemptive work that God's doing. This might be your first time in church ever. Or... Maybe you've been coming for years or decades and it's never really clicked. That's not what's important. What's important is the reminder that there's an invitation that's extended. There's an opportunity today for us to participate in what God is doing in the world. This is why we open communion to everyone. We invite all to come down and to begin to answer the question for themselves. What are you looking for? It's this invitation to come and to see. And it's an invitation that we'll experience and share together today and one that we'll talk about for the next several weeks in this series. So as I get ready to lead us through the sacrament of communion, I'll ask you to pray with me this morning. Gracious God, as we come with our searching and our longing and our wrestling with what it looks like to live in our deepest, fullest purpose, to find significance and meaning in our lives, God, we just ask that you make the call and the invitation clear, that you begin to illuminate the path that we're to walk as we begin to follow you. God, we long to come and see, but God, honestly, sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we just stop believing altogether. And so, God, as we try to follow you, we just ask that you would strengthen us, that you would let the sacrament serve as nourishment for the journey as we continue to search and to find our sense of purpose and fulfillment in you. God, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather together to share in this holy sacrament. And we're grateful for the gift of your son and the invitation that he extends to all of us. We pray this in his name. Amen.